Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on you know, what goes on inside of the Java Virtual Machine. And as usual, you know, my podcasts are kind of irregular, and they come when I get inspired, and somebody asked me some questions about what goes on in a JVM, and that occurred to me that I've given this talk a bunch of times, but I haven't done the podcast version, so this may be old news for some folks, but maybe there's new news for a lot of folks. So, you know, what goes on in a Java Virtual Machine, and what, how do these things come around? So the services that have come into the Java Virtual Machine kept growing over time. Um, many of them were painfully volunteered by sort of a naive change in specs. Some bright young guy said, hey, this is a cool idea, and we'll just do a little hack in the Java Virtual Machine, and suddenly it has to be supported for 20 years, and it's a complete pain in the neck and causes all kinds of grief, but too late now. So, you know, what can we look and, and say what's in a Java virtual machine that people really care about? Well, there's clearly some high quality GCs going on in there. Parallel, concurrent, incremental, low total allocation cost. Over time, the allocators have either gotten faster or with better low latency. Um, you can get them with a wide range of orders of magnitude in terms of performance and stability. There's high quality machine code generation going on. I usually say GCC-02, there's management of the code, there's integrated profiling with the code. These all turn into a bytecode cost model. You can look at your Java code, estimate what the bytecodes would be, and then estimate how much, you know, what the cost to run the code. And that leads in turn to the ability to write performant code. Not that you have to write performant code, you can certainly write slow code, but you can write fast code if you want to. And then there's a uniform threading and memory model. And this means that, you know, prior to the LAN when x86 won the day, you know, memory models were very crucial, very key thing for going for multiple cores. These days they remain crucial, although it's usually an x86 unless you're on a cell phone and then maybe it's an ARM or some other kind of little widget. Java brings a uniform model to that, and that lets you code to a spec which isn't changing and doesn't depend on the underlying hardware. And, and that means you can write portable programs that way, but also you can just understand the spec is well-defined, well-understood, highly, you know, it's been, been the subject of many PhDs and research. It's, it's a good spec to code to. Um, there's type safety is an obvious thing, and that in turn leads to fewer crashes. Dynamic code loading, there's, you know, you can load code on the fly. And when I say load code, it has the same cost model as code that you started with, so that you can de-optimize old code that's no longer valid, re-optimize in the presence of new code, rejet, if you will. And that in turn means that the code loading is not just you can run it, but you can run it well. There's high quality time access, which sounds like a no-brainer, but turned out to be a giant pain in the neck for years upon end with many failed attempts by the hardware folks to get it right. Um, there's a lot of internal introspection services, JVM TI, DI, PI, you know, reflection agents, huge libraries you can go get off the shelf, direct access to OS for threads and scheduling and priorities and you know, calls in and out of native code. And where did all this stuff come from? And, and why and how did, they, did these services appear? It's because all these services, all these virtuals in the Java virtual machine, they're all powerful abstractions. It's what makes the JVM a great place to code to because it lifts the level of discourse from the bare hardware through up through the OS to a higher level than you get out of C and C++. You don't have to worry about allocation. You don't have to worry about how threading looks and works. You don't have to worry about how memory models across processes works. You don't have to worry about the, the type safety of the thing you're about to call. You don't know where it came from or anything else. You know, things just work. It's a better virtual abstraction. So let's sort out 
what those abstractions are. Right? So the, the biggest first one is garbage collection. It's the illusion of infinite memory. You just allocate via new, you don't track lifetimes, you don't free, and GC figures out what's alive and what's dead. Vastly easier to use in malloc and free, and that turns into fewer application-level bugs, quicker time to market, and it does enable certain kinds of concurrent algorithms that it's just too hard to track liveness otherwise. GC does a fundamental thing that's different from malloc and free that you can't fake it. In, in the last, say, you know, from 20 years ago when Java first came around, GC was well understood from an academic point of view, but was not in widespread use, you know, widespread production use. And, and you know, from about 20 years ago to about 10 years ago, GC made the leap. It went to production-ready, robust, parallel. It, it remains and has been a major pain point for many, many people. Too many tuning flags, GC pauses. Um, many people keep churning up new different kinds of GCs in order to get a better behavior. Throughput across the different available GCs might vary by 30%. Pause times vary over like six orders of magnitude. Um, an Azul GBGC will give you hundreds of gigabytes of heap with, you know, on the order of low microsecond counts for max pause time, whereas the old parallel collector um, might give you uh, tens of seconds of GSeq time, and the new concurrent ones do substantially better, but not as good as Azul's, and then there's a range in between, and, and you, know, you kind of pay for what you want. Um, but clearly, it's there and functioning well. So another big illusion we have is that the bytecodes run as fast as like actual underlying hardware. Um, and if you look at them, class files are a pretty lousy way to describe program semantics. Um, but that, that horse left that barn a long time ago. Way better ways to describe Java semantics, eh, too late. But they describe program semantics in a way that's close enough that a standard compiler can, can jump the gap between bytecodes and CPUs and bring about the illusion that the bytecodes are fast. And they, they do this by, by cheating the code, and it brings the illusion that the interpreter is slow and, and that the, you know, the overall ex expected cost model is fast um, by, by bridging the gap. There is an interpreter. You have to have it. It serves a, a fantastic good purpose. Um, but it's not where speed comes from, but it's where correctness and where you start from is. So you have to have it, but that doesn't make Java go fast. But it is a necessary part of being Java. Now, I say necessary in the sense that this is what the, the mainstream Java virtual machine uses. There are ones that use something other than an interpreter um, as their starting execution point. But the, the big guy, the one that you've probably used every day, uses an interpreter for good reason. And that is not the cost model. It uses a JIT to bring about the expected cost model. Once you have a cost model, you can code to it and you can make things go fast if you want to. And that, in turn, brings us to the JIT. The JIT is a high-quality optimizing compiler. Um, you know, in the prior years, I would have said uh, high-quality optimizing compilers are one of the more complicated uh, programs on the planet, and it's just buried inside a Java virtual machine as, uh, you know, as a service in its own right. There's all kinds of other things that go in there that, that make the compiler more complicated than sort of a regular high-quality optimizing compiler, including... Um, heavy-duty use of profiling, um, internal profiling. There's tons of it that and then gets used directly in the code generation. So it's not just profiling so you can see what's fast or slow, but it's profiling to make it go faster. You know, LLVMs come a long way. When I first started the JIT in the Java Virtual Machine, you couldn't use things like LLVM or GCC because they didn't track pointers as carefully as is needed for garbage collection. 
And they didn't track uh, memory updates as carefully as needed to match the Java memory model. They would allow all sorts of reordering of memory loads and stores that aren't allowed to manage the Java memory model. But the minor gains you get aren't worth it. You drop 1% you know, speed up in exchange for getting a memory model that you code in parallel. And there's a bunch of new patterns that had to be optimized. They didn't show up in particular range check elimination. Um, and, and all kinds of interesting inlining, including virtual call inlinings of various things. And then you had profiling all the time that, that you wanted to take advantage of right away. And that brings us down to you know, virtual calls. Um, in, in languages like C++, you have to ask for a call to be virtual. Programmers don't get them by default. They ask for them special. They know they are slow. In Java, you got them by default. You, you didn't need them mostly, but when you needed them, you had them, and you just didn't have to say the word virtual on the, on the call site. You just got a virtual call. But that meant that virtual calls that weren't actually virtual in practice, needed to be made fast. And that turned out to, to lead to a cascading series of optimizations, the sum of which made Java go a lot faster in domains which C and C++ had been strong at. And that's, you know, the JVM will do class hierarchy analysis to decide what calls are possible at a call site. We'll do all kinds of constant propagation and folding and subclass elimination games to decide what kinds of objects can appear at a call site. And then it will do a lot of profiling. So even when CHA fails to make a call site static, it might be static in practice. And you can use this little thing called an inline cache. And then if all of these things fail, ah, virtual calls are back to being slow because it's doing an actual virtual call the way the C++ would have it. So, you know, it, it comes around to you can have your cake and eat it too, but it required a lot of engineering under the hood to make that happen. So the Java memory model, um, this was a, 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 there was an era when there were a lot more different varieties of machines in everyday desktop usage and parallel programming was clearly coming. People were hitting the, the power wall. They couldn't speed things up by adding, you know, higher clock frequency. The power goes up in the cube and so pretty soon you hit the surface temperature of the sun. You're, everyone's heard that one. Um, so you went parallel instead, you had multiple cores, and then you, everyone suddenly becomes a parallel programmer, and people didn't have a good way to do parallel programming, and Java brought about a way to you know, rip the entire industry forward in the parallel programming. It's sort of still the assembly language version of parallel programming. It's the lowest level nuts and bolts, but you can do it. And that's the Java memory model. And the, the Java brings a consistent memory model across all kinds of hardware. I personally implemented the, the, the JIT, and well, actually most of the different parts that involve the memory model um, on x86, Spark, uh, uh, Power, MIPS, ARM, Itanium, and Azul, so like six or seven chips, like a bunch. And, and the difference here is that the Java memory model means your program semantics don't depend on the hardware or the rev of the compiler. It's defined by the language. And that, that enables people to write you know, parallel, parallel programs of all kinds and have them move between pieces of hardware. Turns out that for a while, uh, Intel would not tell you what their, um, their memory model was. And we had to sort of discover it on the fly and then change the JVM to match. And then for a while, it depended upon, say, the motherboard you built from. And these days, it's well-defined by Intel, and it's a little bit more conservative than the Java memory model. So anything that will run, well, that runs on the, uh, on the, on an Intel in Java gets the, the, the union or the most conservative aspect of both of those memory models. But the same program that's valid Java program run on an ARM might show slightly different behavior because the ARM memory model is a little different. It will still follow the Java spec though.
Um, and you know, the end result was you had fast, you have fast loads and stores. The the byte codes keep their promise of the cost model, and also you have the the well understood program semantics for what happens between different threads running on the same shared memory hardware. And you don't have to worry yourself under the hood about what is allowed to be ordered or not, um, code scheduling and placement of fences and locks and CAS ops. That all happens under the hood and requires you know, detailed close cooperation from the JIT, from the hardware, from the interpreter, from the garbage collector, and it's all handled for you. So speaking of close cooperation from the, the, the hardware, um, there's a consistent thread model in, in the Java virtual machine. And if you look at other OSs, Linux, um, AIX, Solaris, but these days also the various cell phones, they have a different threading model each to each other. And Java, you just say new thread, and it just works on 1,000 on CPU machines, on micro devices, and everything in the middle, and synchronized, and wait, notify, and join. These things all just work. And that's because the Java virtual machine under the hood has a well-specced out meaning of what it has to, to say, you know, new thread. And it's been productionalized so that you can have uh, thousands of runnables, hundreds of thousands of runnables, and have it still work. And, and that's a crucial thing because people went through these various coding style paradigms and they're discovering what it means to code in parallel where they maybe wanted a new thread for every concurrent running web service access. And that might get you to thousands of runnable threads. And the OSs were expecting to see tens to dozens. Um, and, and they weren't prepared for thousands and they would do uh, things that were lower quality, like starve certain threads out indefinitely while others were running. And, and Java would fix that, it has fixed that. Um, and so, you know, the same notion goes around with locks. Um, obviously, if you have a contention in your, in your lock, you have to block and go in the OS. And you'd like to expect fairness from the OS, but in fact, you don't get fairness from the OS and you can get totally get starvation. And so Java went down the path of saying, once you hit a certain count of threads on a lock, it's time to force fairness um, outside of the OS. You're not getting it from the OS. And, and so you get fairness and that turns into better application behavior. But, you know, locks were really common, are really common in Java programs, in part because people haven't known how to do, uh, you know, high-quality uh, parallel programming. And so they would throw in synchronization keywords um, to fix bugs where they weren't sure because their data races are rare and uncommon or whatever. And so they keep throwing in synchronized keywords until the bugs go away. So synchronized becomes very common. And even so, it's also typically very uncontended. And so fast, uncontended synchronized is a, is a key thing to optimize. And so you have to profile every lock to see if it's been contended. And then if it's not contended, you do spin and retry. You can do uh, you know single CAS to take, single CAS to release. Um, it, it, bias locking is also in place. And that can bring the cost down to a handful of clock cycles uh, if the lock essentially never changes hands, which is common for a large variety of locks. And you know, as a consequence of having the ability to have high quality, fast locking, um, the industry as a whole learned a lot about concurrent, you know, a particular concurrent programming style of just threads and locks. Um, and, and I'll claim there are better solutions out there now, but there weren't when we started. And many, many programs still rely on just threads and locks. And generally, you know, work lists, work pools, and caching as a, their typical parallel programming paradigm. Okay, um, one of the things I mentioned in here was the uh, quick time, well, high quality time access. Um, there have been some prior old Java benchmarks where a, a winning uh, high score in the benchmark, the, the 
current time millis would get called billions of times a seconds in machines that were a decade old now. Um, it's still fairly common in all large Java apps. And furthermore, there are plenty of Java apps, including mainstream uh, uh, application servers, which many, many people were using hosting on, which they would expect that if, if a current time million on one thread was less than the current time million is reported on another thread, then there was a happens before relationship down to the clock cycle between thread one and thread two. That is to say, if one thread asked for current time millis and got t, and the second thread asked for it and got t plus one millisecond, then th the first thread could assume that anything he stored was exactly before anything that saw in thread two. However, that requires the two cores to communicate back and forth on the, 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 what current time millis means at a granularity of a clock cycle. Okay, well that wasn't possible until uh, x86's um, TSC register became valid and available across all cores in machine um, until maybe 2012. The value was not coherent across CPUs, and when it became uh, available in all CPUs, it wasn't consistent. There was, you know, a CPU might be in uh, slower ticking, low power mode, and the, the clock cycles would tick slower or faster. Um, and, it, and so it would be, you know, monotonically increasing per CPU, but threads might jump between CPUs, so it was not monotonically increasing per thread. Um, and so you had to do something else, but you had to handle the billion times of day. Um, you know, we ended up um, doing some hacks on like Linux now. You can go, uh, current time millis calls Linux fastest get time of day call. And, you know, th there's a better way. Um, we wish Linux could have done this, which was just have a background page, have a page that um, all the user threads just read and an OS thread once a millisecond updates the counter of milliseconds. Um, it would be a giant speed up and give you the uniform clock, but hey, you know, it wasn't there. Um, it turns out that, that you know, along the way with messing around with the TSC register, hypervisors got involved because they liked to idealize the TSC register, and that meant they made it uniformly monotonically ticking, but they intercepted a call to the TSC register, and so that would slow access to the TSC by 100-fold. And if you're calling something a billion times a second and you slow it down by 100-fold, it's like death. You know, it's like heat death universe. It's another kind of a bug. You didn't crash, but you ran so slow, you might as well have crashed. Just, you just give it up, right? So we couldn't actually use a TSC register. It wasn't usable for many, many years. And then when it finally became usable, you still had to get it away from the hypervisors. Um, and so we ended up doing a different thing. You know, eh, fine. Okay, so then I want to talk about, so I'm going to change topics here. Talk about some illusions we'd like to have that never really had. Um, and, and you know, maybe we wish we'd have. Tail calls, you know, uh, uh, recursion optimization. Every functional language out there likes to do tail call elimination. Um, it's like the main optimization that lets you take uh, pure recursive calls for loops and turn them into a loop actually um, simply by saying it's the last call of this function and you're just doing and the rest for the rest of the call. Well, that's the rest of the loop. And without it, you grow your stack once per recursive depth until you blow your stack out. You know, stack's a finite resource, and it's a linear access where you don't need it because you're striding through the stack space, adding one for every time you make a recursive call, and then you're running it backwards, unwinding the stack. Okay, fine. It stupidly could have been done years ago. It never did. Um, uh, kind of kick myself every time I think about it. There was a time when I could have done it in about a week. Eh, fine, it's done. Um, closures, you know, Java 7, 8, Lambda calls, uh, made a big step forward there, but never really did closures. Um, but you could do closures, you know, Python's generators are, are halfway between uh, thunks and closures. 
there is something cool to be done there. And, and if it had been done early on, it would have gotten all the good optimization treatment and it would have been really slick. Let me talk a little bit about, about capital I integer and autoboxing because it's a giant cheaty fail. Autoboxing is this fantastic convenient thing that fantastically conveniently silently causes a 10x slowdown. Uh, and so you have to be wary of it. Yes, it's very convenient. Yes, if you don't have a high volume usage of it, um, it's all good. But if you accidentally use it in a loop that's running billions of times a second, you just killed yourself. And it's easy to accidentally use it because autoboxing is silent. And you know, I don't know what to do. This is a language issue where you need some sort of, we can be very convenient for you and do lots of syntactic sugar flag, but you can also ask for only allow things that are highly performant here so that I can guarantee get down to the metal. Uh, whatever it's going to be. Um, just you know, be careful with, with capital I integer. It's not as cheap as int by like 10x or 100x. Like it's a lot slower. Then there's big integer, which you know this is like uh, JavaScript people did, and they optimized the Dickens out of the overflow path from little int to big integer, and it's never as efficient as a little integer by itself, and you rarely need to go to big integer, but when you do, you, you need big integer, um, and you use big integer, and I claim that people rarely care to fall over the edge of 64 bits from you know a long, which by the way is just as cheap as it, pretty much just as cheap as an int a little int, to big integer without knowing that they're going to fall over that path. And so if they know it, they can say big integer. And if they don't know it, they almost surely are not. And they don't need to pay the cost of being able to fall over it. So I think Java got that part right. Then along the way, though, they lost the ability to sort of really have high quality optimized big integer path. It's done by the standard JET, but it's not done as a core service by the Java virtual machine the way JavaScript did it. Um, software transactional memory is another fun thing, but I, I claim that was that was a, a game that that people have been looking for. What's the right way to do concurrent algorithms? I claim we still don't know. Um, I claim people are trying uh, STMs in, in you know different kinds of ways. Intel finds through some hardware in it. Um, but I think it's only going to be usable for like library writers to do sort of core infrastructure. Uh, calls that might be a little bit faster than solutions we've worked out in other ways. I, I think that um, you know my work with uh, 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 using the big arrays for parallel uh, high quality concurrent algorithms and Martin Thompson's disruptor style are sort of two techniques that show that you can, can go to the metal on standard hardware and get good concurrent you know performance out but you have to code to a funny style but that only needs to happen in the libraries and so the libraries need to be done the right way yeah fine um, invoke dynamic finally showed up I claim it's doing something helpful although there's there's surely a better way to solve the problem of letting you know JRuby and Jython and all the alternative language folks have a different calling paradigm and still get the other services of a Java virtual machine. You know, everything else the Java virtual machine does is like really cool, and these people piled in on it because they didn't want to write a code generator or a garbage collector or, or threading libraries for everything, whatever. And then they get stuck with, hey, you 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 everything you want to call has to look like invoke virtual, right? And then if you can't look like invoke virtual, you end up looking like what reflective calls, which you know suck for performance. Okay, so you know there's something done there and maybe it got uh, a, a further ways along. Here's another illusion that we might think we have and we don't and that's thread priorities. Um, mostly you don't get it because Linux won't give it to you without root permission because the default priority is the max and therefore a Java virtual machine 
has to run all its services at max or as root. No one runs at root in production, so you have to run them at max. That means you have to run the user permissions less than max, or else if you launch a thousand runnable users, user threads, they'll compete with, like, say, the garbage collector or the concurrent GC, which can totally get starved out, and then you can't either compile, and so you're running interpreted always, or that you can't get your garbage collector to run until you run out of memory, and then you take a giant GC pause in your, in your low pause GC. So you have to have thread priorities in the Java virtual machine, but that means that the Java mode user threads are running at lower priority than all the other threads on the Linux box, and so they lose out to, say, a MySqueal also running on the box, or a LAMP stack, or something else running it. There's, a, there's an issue there um, that I claim is like an OS-related problem. Um, you can get better default priorities on some other OSs, but the standard Linux one, and eh, 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 fine, whatever. Um, finalizers, let's talk about finalizers. They sound like a great idea. They turned out to suck for what they were supposed to be used for. Um, and that was for reclaiming OS resources. So, you know, the, the, the canonical example I hand out every time is, you know, Tomcat was this great application doing you know web serving and they would launch a thread per access and they would open file handles in that thread and go do what they're going to do and then they throw the thread away and expect the finalizers to run clean the file handles and where java heaps were small the the gcs ran frequently and because the heap was small the gc was fast and so you didn't mind the pause and the finalizers ran frequency frequently and you reclaimed all those uh, file handles well the os only had 64,000 and its heaps got bigger and gcs got further and further apart it was longer and longer to reclaim file handles, and also your pause times got bigger. And then it comes to a funny game of, oh, look, you ran out of OS file handles. And so a Tomcat would crash and burn if you had a big enough heap and you ran it under heavy enough load because you didn't get a full GC cycle in. And then we got a request to go add a hook that says, if you ran out of file handles in the Java virtual machine, we'd go to the OS and ask, give me a file handle. And the OS would say, no, I'm all out. And so the Java virtual machine would go to the GC side and say, hey, run a full GC cycle right now and see if you can reclaim finalizers. And then you go back to the OS and ask again, hey, we ran all the finalizers. Can we get a handle now? And the, you know, the answer was, is this is like a really poor way to manage OS resources because there's no timeliness guarantees given to finalizers. They run, but God knows when. They could be never or forever heat down the universe before they run. And, you know, do you really want to have your program dependent upon the size of the heap and when the GC cycle next gets around to running finalizers? When Azul did their GC, they kind of took that one head on and said everything with a finalizer goes on a special queue it has a timer on it and then when the timer ran out we damn well collected them but that added a bunch of complexity and slowdowns for finalizers um, strictly to do you know because they're being used to reclaim OS resources you know there's there's a better way um, you need to reclaim OS resources with uh, you know like Java versus C++ you know destructors really um, soft and phantom refs um, again I claim it was a, a, a an attempt to allow garbage collection to manage a user mode resource, you know, in this case, caches. Um, but then I watched a, an issue where, you know, you get a low memory, which causes you to, to do a couple rapid GC cycles because your, your server's been running at, you know, running steady state high load for a while. The caches are full and working as caches work. And then you run out of memory. So you do a GC cycle, you get a few in a row. So the GC decides to flush the soft rest. Well, the soft rests are all in the caches. That flushes your cache. Then your cache is all empty, but your load remains high, but you miss in your cache because your cache is empty. So you have to do all the work to reload the cache. Well, that does the work requires a lot more allocation, runs a lot of GC cycle again, which can flushes your caches and suddenly your server's throughput 
fell off and crashed and burned was slower than hell and it didn't re, 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 uh, reset until you stop the load to the server you'd have to reboot the Java virtual machine to stop the load on the server let the GC cycle settle down, apply the load slowly, the cache fills up slowly, and you can ramp up the load until it's full and running stable again, until a little more bobble, and suddenly you fall over some threshold, and you do too many GC cycles in a row, and the cache flushes and crash, your server runs, you know, his throughput drops off by 100x again. So, you know, it looked good in practice, but they didn't work out all the different feedback cycles in there. And, you know, really, you're asking a question, can a general purpose garbage collector know enough about your user application to understand how to manage the caches? And I claim, no, that's not what it's good for. That's not what it's used for. Mm, not, not a good idea. A quick summary here. Um, services that the JVM provides sort of directly, uh, garbage collecting, jetting, Java memory model, thread management, fast time access, hiding the CPU date details and hardware memory model from the user. Um, you get a, a, a bunch of services that come through the JVM and through like well and fast and efficiently in bulk, you know, threads, context switching, um, priorities of some kind, IO files, virtual memory protection. <clears throat> and then there's a bunch of services that Many, many people have applied that are above the JVM that you could ponder whether they belong there. There's thread pools and work lists, basically uh, versions of concurrency, right? Transactions, crypto for you know all your web services, caching models of concurrent programming. Um, new languages have all kinds of uh, new dispatch. And then they get into like, what do you want to do with big integer? And there's a better way to do it. I claim it would be useful if we could get the OS to report a fast quality time, uh, which was you know accurate down to the clock cycle, and all you need is a, a, share, a process shared read-only page that the kernel updates once a second, that the processes all just read a word, and the, and the word just has the millisecond time, and it gets down to a single cacheable coherent load instruction as fast as it's ever going to get. Um, thread priorities, um, JVM's been doing it. Um, it needs to happen at the OS level, but that means Linux has to change uh, how they do priorities. Or you have to be willing to let your user mode Java threads like lose out to other user mode threads running on the same box. And maybe that's what people end up doing, and it's okay. You know, at Azul, we ended up faking thread priorities with duty style locks and blocks. It kind of sucked, but it was necessary to get reliable performance out of the garbage collector. Anyhow, there are a ton of interesting services in Java Virtual Machine, and it's made it a, a, a robust, reliable way to code on for for 20 years now. And uh, I and I, I'm not saying anything about Java as much as the Java Virtual Machine. And there are a bunch of things I would do differently now. I know better. And and you know that horse left the barn a long time ago. So, it, but it, it's still a lot of high quality stuff under the hood there. And maybe next time we should go down the path of jitting because I get a lot of questions about people about what does it mean to jit and the interpreter and how those work so people vote with me um, look for me at cliff under click on Twitter or on my blog at cliffc.org slash blog and tell me what do you think how, how deep and how fast can I go down the jitting path and uh, you know with that may all your Java virtual machines run pause free <laughs> <laughs>